All right, so um, we talked last time about the seven deadly sins, the stuff that breaks love. Now I want to begin to move into the positive side and talk about the things that uh, are manifestations of love. But first I would like a little comfort and reassurance. Who remembers the list of the seven deadly sins? Who remembers the acronym? Okay. Okay, and who can say all seven with the help of the acronym in order? Who can do it? Okay. There you go, and I never have to forget them again. This handy acronym. So here's an acronym for the seven cardinal virtues. The deadly sins are pusagal, and the virtues are chafwijikad. <laughs> it's a little unwieldy, but you know, it's like the computer stuff, it's functional. Yeah. Chafwijikad. <laughs> See that? Charity, hope, faith. Wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. Chaf Wijikat. Chaf Wijikat. Charity, hope, faith. That's the chaf part. Wijikat. Wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. Okay. So it's a list of seven, and why is it seven? It's seven because uh, these lists are a product of the patristic and medieval periods, and they're numerological periods. They just love playing with numbers, and they love seven. So that's why they're seven. Okay, so we have here three theological virtues and four uh, non-theological virtues. The four are the Greek virtues, sometimes called the cardinal virtues. They're the ones inherited from uh, the Aristotelian tradition. And we're going to talk a lot more about what these are, but I want to say just a word about charity, hope, and faith at this point. So uh, we are accustomed in academic circles to thinking of faith as a matter of granting adherence to a set of propositions. But that is not what we are talking about here. And good thing too, because if you take faith in that way, it does make hash very quickly of some theological doctrines. But that's not what's at issue on this list. Here's what faith is on the list. It's a love of God's goodness, a longing for God's goodness and a hatred of your own sin. Now, of course, there are beliefs that go with this attitude. And if you, if you thought that there was no God, you couldn't long for God's goodness. So there are beliefs that go with this. But the crucial part of faith is in the will and not in the intellect. And that's a good thing because this faith is a virtue. And for a virtue, you need something in the will. So Aquinas thinks that in an instant, in, in an instant, a person comes to faith. In that instant, a person surrenders to the love of God, longs for God's goodness, and hates those things in himself that are sinful that keep him from that goodness. And that is the first moment of faith. That's the first moment of spiritual regeneration. And in that moment, all these virtues come. So what comes with faith is charity, a love of God, and this love is second personal. It's not a matter of your standing at some distance and seeing far off there's this beautiful being way beyond you and thinking, wow, isn't he glorious? Love is second personal and interactive. In the moment of coming to faith, you also come to God and God comes to you. 
And so the love of God is a love that is a matter of having, not just of longing for. So the Song of Songs represents the attitude you have when you are in the first instant of faith, my beloved is mine and I am his. His banner over me is love. Now you might think with charity understood in that way and faith understood in this way, what's left for hope? What's it supposed to be doing? Well, see, in, in faith we have a two-pronged attitude. One attitude toward yourself, hatred of your own sin. One attitude directed toward God, longing for his goodness. In charity, we have, you might say, a kind of fulfillment of that longing for God's goodness, at least in this sense, that the God you love is with you and you are with God. That's where charity comes in. But hope has to do with that other prong, that other prong of faith, the one directed toward yourself where you hate your own sin. So think about it this way. Um, Through your fault, your own fault, your most grievous fault, you are the ugliest of human beings. So you figure what ugliness is in your worldview, ugliness of body or ugliness of mind, whatever it is, imagine to yourself, whatever that is, you got it, you're the ugliest. And now I put it to you like this. Well, don't worry because the prince is coming for you and the prince loves you. And the prince loves you just as you are, no problem. In fact, the prince loves you so much, you're gonna be the prince's Cinderella, he chooses you, you're going to the ball and you're gonna be his sole partner at the ball. Now, what's left to want if this is the story? I'll tell you what's left to want. Going to the ball as somebody other than the ugliest person there ever was. There is something about being the ugliest person there ever was that's kind of hard to bear even if you're told the prince loves you and is taking you to the ball. So the prince is terrific, merciful, kind, and so on, but who wants to be the prince's dancing partner as the ugliest person there ever was? If the story proposes to you that you live your whole life with this loving prince dancing with you while you're the ugliest person there ever was, it can be kind of a grim and miserable situation. That's where hope comes in. So you can think about hope this way on a different kind of a metaphor. Suppose that um, you're desperately poor, the, the kid needs a, a surgery which the insurance won't cover, the furnace went out, the car just broke down and the roof is leaking and you have no idea, the bank won't lend you any money and nobody else will either and you don't know what to do. And then it turns out, miraculously, you have won the lottery, $30 million. $30 million is a lot of money, but it's going to take him about six months to process the check. Okay, now you're still poor, you still got a problem, the roof's leaking, you still got a problem with paying for the surgery, you still got a problem, your car doesn't work, you got all those problems just the same, but you're going to face them in a lot different way because what you know is the check is in the mail. Hope is the conviction that for you, the check is in the mail. So you still have to go through life trotting along as the ugliest person there ever was, 
but the check is in the mail. And the minute it comes, you are going to be so beautiful, you're going to love to be the you that you are. That's hope. You can face what you can't stand about yourself better if you understand that the check for you is in the mail. And now we have what we need to deal with that second prong of the virtue of faith. There's hope with regard to you, and there's joy with regard to the God you long for. In charity, we get the joy, and in hope, we get what you need in order to be patient with yourself. So those are the theological virtues, and now, um, just to remind you, we have a unity of the virtues thesis. If you have any of these virtues, you have all of them. If you're missing any of them, you're missing all of them. And while this thesis isn't true for virtue that you get by practicing something, good disposition you get by practicing, it is true of the infused virtues and all real virtue is, uh, all real virtue is infused virtue. And if you remember what I told you about pride, you can see why Pelagianism is uh, pride. It falls under the vice of pride because according to Pelagianism, you have an excellence that you have acquired for yourself, which is, which species of pride? You can remember. Four species of pride. First one is, you think you have an excellence you don't have, and the second one is, you think you have an excellence you do have, but, but you got it for yourself. We shouldn't have the Dominicans helping. <laughs> So Pelagianism, an adherent of Pelagianism, is suffering from the second form of pride. So that's a way to think about it. Okay, so uh, all the virtues are infused when a person first surrenders to God's love and ceasing, ceases to resist it. So here's the basic idea. Everyone who is not regenerate has a resistance to God's grace and God's love. Now that might not be an explicit resistance, it might not be a conscious resistance, it certainly does not need to be a blameworthy or a culpable resistance. It can be a resistance which makes the person having the resistance only more attractive to us or more an object of love and compassion to us. But nonetheless, the basic position is everyone not regenerate is not regenerate because there is in that as part of the post-fall human condition, a kind of resistance to love, and especially a resistance to God's love. Now you might think to yourself, especially uh, if you're one of those people who never reads novels, I mean, you might think to yourself, who resists love? Is this absurd? Everybody wants to have love. Everybody does. But then you're just not paying attention to the way things are in human beings. So our most famous case of uh, this condition in a human being, our most famous case comes from Catullus. He was passionately, deeply, violently, intensely in love with a woman he called uh, Lesbia. And what he said about her famously is, Odi et amo. I hate her and I love her. That's the, the way we are. We want to be loved, we want to love, and why is it, then, that so many of our friendships, our family relationships, our marriages, our partnerships, wind up broken? How is that possible? I want to be loved. She wants to be loved. 
we're bonded as sisters, what could, what could the problem be? Well, and now you could laugh. Everybody knows what the problem is. She wants to be loved by me, I want to be loved by her, and now what? Now we have the human condition. I remember when she did thus and such, but she doesn't remember that, and she says that she didn't, and anyway, she wants me really close to her, but she doesn't actually want to be emotionally available for me, and so on, and that's why it goes. People want desperately to be loved, and something in their hearts also self-protectively wards off other people, because why? You don't know what they're going to do if you let them get that close, and so on. So... There is a resistance to love in, in us as part of the post-fall human condition, but there can come a moment in every life when a person surrenders. So there's a moment that Alcoholics Anonymous describes, a moment of crash and surrender. There's a moment that the psychologists describe, a transformative moment where adversarial growth begins in response to trauma and so on. However you're going to describe it, there is a moment where a person can let go and surrender to the love of God and cease rejecting it. Aquinas says in that moment, the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, comes to indwell in a person. And the Holy Spirit brings with it all the virtues and all the gifts and all the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Everything comes at the same time. Now you might think to yourself, well in that case I never saw a person who had that moment of faith because everybody I know still has a lot of vices. But that's alright because the story doesn't say that in the Holy Spirit's coming the vices are gone. It just says what's added to them are the gifts, fruits, and infused virtues. So the old bad dispositions are still in there. They still have to be given up by you but the virtues are there as well, and so is the Holy Spirit to be with you while you begin the process of sanctification. And you might think to yourself, well, look, what's the point of this stupid system? If God's going to come into a person, and God's going to infuse virtues, why doesn't he take the vices out? Because, the answer is, because you don't want him to. See, this is not a system where God eats you up like the alien invasion from Alpha Centauri or something. This is a system where you are your beloved's and he is yours, and for that you still have to be here as a person. And to be here as a person, your will has to be your own. And if God simply invades and turns your will into something he thinks it would be nicer for it to be, we don't have your will anymore. We just have God's will in two places. So God doesn't take away from you the old vices until you're ready for him to do so. So do you remember what Augustine prayed to God about chastity? Please God, please God, I can't stand it anymore. I have to have chastity. Give me chastity, give me chastity. But not, but not today, okay. Not today. With that kind of mental reservation, not today, God cannot give you what you're asking for because if God gives it to you, then he's breaking your will. He's breaking your will because you don't want what you want. When you finally do want what you want, then God can give it to you and integrate you and the will you have will still be your own. So that's why God doesn't take away the old vices because you don't want him to. And the process of sanctification is the process of slowly integrating the fragmented parts of your will so that you begin to want what you want to want. That's how it works. So... 
here's the theological virtues. Faith is the hatred of your own evil and the longing for God's goodness. Hope is the acceptance that you will be good to, for sure it's coming. And charity is the love of God and God's goodness. And to love God and God's goodness is to love it wherever it's found, in other people as well. So that's our theological virtues. And um, here's the basic idea behind the cardinal virtues, or the Greek virtues, as they're sometimes called. Um, wisdom is a matter of understanding what's really good and worth pursuing and what isn't. Now, wisdom looks as if it's a matter of something in your reason or something in your intellect or in your mind. But it's on the list of virtues, and so it's also something about your will. And that's because um, your will and your intellect are hooked up in such a way that if you don't want what's good, you can make yourself morally stupid. So, do you guys know who Adolf Eichmann is? Yeah, do you? I don't see enough head nods, that's sort of scary. <laughs> okay, so he was, he was an important Nazi. He helped engineer the genocide of the Jews. He got the transports organized, he got the death camps functioning smoothly. He organized some of the death marches when the death camps were dissolved. Uh, he was brought to trial in 1960 in Jerusalem, and everybody knew that the very likely outcome of that trial was that he would be put to death by the Israelis. And the Israelis, being uh, humane people, assigned Eichmann a Lutheran pastor. Eichmann came from a, a German culture where uh, Lutheranism was the dominant form of Christianity, so they assigned him a Lutheran pastor to be with him and to walk the journey with him. And when news came through that Eichmann would in fact be executed, the news came through in a kind of dramatic way, although it was an expected outcome of the trial. Nonetheless, when the news came through, Eichmann had only two hours before, between when he got the news and when the Israelis were going to uh, kill him by hanging. So in that two-hour period, the Lutheran pastor said to him, would you like to make your confession before you die? And he said to the Lutheran pastor, no, what would I confess? I've never done anything wrong. I don't have anything to confess. And now all the rest of us are horrified. Because, because what we know is his intellect is radically self-deceived. And it's radically self-deceived because for years his will has been misprogramming the intellect so that it doesn't see where the true good is. So will is a mixed moral and intellectual virtue. You get the ability to understand what's really good and worth pursuing and what isn't in case your will is focused in charity on love of the Lord. And if it isn't, you can begin this process of self-deception until you are a moral monster and believe of yourself that you've never done anything wrong. So that's wisdom. Courage is having the heart to go after that good, even in difficult and challenging circumstances. And temperance is a matter of being in the habit of disciplining yourself so that you can make yourself act on wisdom and courage.
That's the idea of these. But what I want to focus on here now is justice. So justice is a matter of love and goodness in relations among human beings. And one quick way to get a fix on justice in this system is to focus on what used to be called the alms deeds and is now called the works of mercy. So I bow to the conventional terminology and I call these things the works of mercy because that's their current name. But the old name was better. The old name was alms deeds and it was better because works of mercy suggest that these things have to do with mercy and are optional. But actually, in the Thomistic system, they have to do with justice, and they are not optional, they are obligatory. So, um, here's the way to think about the alms deeds. You're guilty of injustice if you omit them, and in fact, since injustice is a mortal sin, you're guilty of mortal sin if you omit them. And now I would like to just remind you, because it matters here, uh, to be a mortal sin, to be in mortal sin is to be separated from God and to be going to hell for everlasting damnation unless you repent. I need to, I need to highlight that. Uh, I, need, I mean, I need to put some, some vigor and some color into this idea because otherwise you're going to go back unreflectively to thinking of these things as works of mercy, which some nice people do, but if you don't do, well, whatever, it doesn't matter very much. But that's not the idea. They're obligatory. So, there are two lists of alms deeds, or works of mercy, and they are both obligatory and they're both matters of justice. And it's really, uh, it's really a power of this system to have these lists. And I have no acronyms. If you want to be um, really ingenious, you can build me acronyms for the works of mercy, and I will pass them on to everyone thereafter and attribute the acronym to you. So here's the corporal works of mercy. Feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, visit the sick, ransom the captive, bury the dead. Uh, who knows where we get these lists? Who knows where these come from? Do you know? You know? Yeah, go for it. Like Matthew 24. Mm-hmm, which says what? What's, <coughs> that? What's in Matthew 24? Uh, the Yeah, what does Christ say to those poor goats? Right, and all the rest. And therefore, what should the goats do? Go to the fires of hell. Yeah. <laughs> Depart from me, you evildoers, into the fires of hell forever. I mean, just, you know, just, just keep it in mind. So that's, that's where this list comes from. And... Um, And notice that this list, what do I say? It doesn't say, uh, it doesn't say a little bit but no more. It doesn't say, here's your formula for tithing. After that, forget about it. It just says, and it also, here's the other thing it doesn't say. It doesn't say, you look at all those people who've got needs and you divide them into the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. There's 
People who are in this position because they're alcoholic, they're drug addicted, they're too young, they're too old, they're too this, they're too, they're undeserving poor, they got themselves into that, this position themselves, those are the folks you don't have to pay attention to. It doesn't actually say that. The patristic period is marvelous on this list, and Ambrose, St. Ambrose in particular, really hates that distinction between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. He says, you make that distinction just so you can avariciously keep your stuff for yourself. So the idea is, if he's hungry, if he's thirsty, if he's naked, if he's homeless, if he's sick, and so on. We don't ransom captives much anymore. What have we got in place? What have we got instead of ransoming the captives? Who knows? What's our version of this? Visiting the prisoners. That's right. Okay. All right, now here's the idea about justice. The idea is that if you keep for yourself more than is required for your condition in life, you're guilty of theft. This is Ambrose's idea, Chrysostom's idea. We find this also in some of the Cappadocian fathers. And Aquinas for sure accepts it. If you keep more for yourself than is necessary for your condition in life, you're guilty of theft. So we're going to notice that caveat, condition in life, because that's uh, important. Um, I used to live next door to a family whose kids were sort of matched to mine, and they used to come to my house for refereeing. When there was a fight between the parents and the kids, they'd come to my house and ask me to referee. And one time when they came, uh, the teenage girl and her dad were having a fight over snow boots. So she said she needed department store girl snow boots for school, and he said, no, she didn't. Snow boots at the department store were expensive, and she could wear his galoshes. And she said she would rather kill herself than wear his galoshes to school. So I said to her dad, um, you know, you go to conferences, you lecture at conferences and so on. Um, Do you wear your sweatshirt and jeans when you go? He said, of course not. I wear what everybody else wears. Wear coat and tie. I said, right. And she has to wear what everybody else wears, too. She can't really go to the high school wearing your galoshes. She does have to have snow boots. That's the point about condition in life. But see, if you're uh, Elizabeth Taylor, or whoever the current analog to Elizabeth Taylor is, and think that your condition in life requires the Hope Diamond, then the caveat has gotten out of control, and it's wrecked the idea. So that condition, your condition in life, that's tricky, but has to be employed by caritas, or the whole point of the alms deeds list is wrecked. But still, there is such a thing as condition in life, And here's another interesting point. This applies to time as well as money. So I have a buddy who's a priest in an order, but I won't tell you which one since we have Dominicans around. And um, he, he refused to buy a printer. So when he needed to print, he would run down a couple of flights of stairs, down the hallway to the communal printer in the building, chat with the people who were already in line there till he got his piece of paper and then go back. That's to suppose that the $99 it would have cost for the printer is something he shouldn't spend given his condition in life. But all that time, all that time, that was okay for him to waste 
on running around the building and visiting with other faculty, that was okay, because only money is a resource and time is not, and that's ridiculous. Or here's another, uh, another uh, story to show you the point. So uh, when my daughter was very small, like every mother going, I got a crazy idea, and I thought her life would not go well unless she had a canopy bed. She could not be raised well or live well unless she had a canopy bed. And I don't know where that idea came from, I really don't, but I had it, it was very strong. And canopy beds cost $100. In those days when my daughter was little, $100 was a lot of money, and um, the stern accountant to whom I am married said, there is no way we're spending $100 on a canopy bed. And then, out of the clear blue sky, somebody sent me a check for $100. Just completely unexpected. And I said, canopy bed. <laughs> and my husband didn't have the heart to tell me that unexpected $100 couldn't go for the canopy bed. So I was happily going out to get this canopy bed. And my neighbor said to me, well, I suppose you don't know that there are Egypt Ethiopian children dying of starvation. Have you noticed that? You're going to spend a whole hundred dollars on a canopy bed when there are children who are starving? And I was stricken and ashamed and sent my money to some save the children sort of organization, and we had no canopy bed. And then my neighbor, the jerk, who had a daughter exactly the same age as mine, went in the basement and built his daughter a canopy bed. <laughs> And I thought, you know what? The Ethiopians need your time as well as my money. Time is also a resource. So the basic point is this. You are required to be a good steward of yourself and of your resources so that you have something to give to others. So your job is to make sure you have something to give and then to give unstintingly as you can, compatible with your condition in life, where your condition in life has got to be understood in a reasonable kind of way that makes allowance for human community, but also doesn't wreck the list of the alms deeds. So whatever you've got, your gifts, your talents, your time, your money, all these things are gifts given by God that are meant to be given back. And you've got to adjudicate them. So if you have great gifts, for Sanskrit, say, and you have a great, a great heart for Sanskrit learning and so on, but somebody persuades you that you need to spend your life working in the soup kitchen in the inner city, you've made a mistake. You've made a mistake because you've got a gift for something that very few people have a gift for, and you need to think how you can use that good in service for God's people. So that's a point of saying you need to figure out how to be a good steward of what you have been given and not waste what you have in foolish ways, but use what you have for the well-being of your neighbors. Okay, so that's the corporal works of mercy. And here are uh, the seven spiritual works of mercy. Instruct the ignorant, counsel the doubtful, comfort the sorrowful, fraternal correction, forgive trespasses, bear with those who trouble us, and pray for others. This list trumps the list of the seven corporal works of mercy because the needs of the spirit and the needs of the psyche trump the needs of the body. Of course, only, in, only other things being equal. If you've got somebody lying on the sidewalk in front of you bleeding, 
and you begin to explain to them Thomistic ethics, you have made a mistake. <laughs> so when the needs of the body are urgent, they trump everything. But other things being equal, the list of the seven spiritual alms deeds trump the list of the corporal alms deeds. So, um, so I like here the story of uh, Elijah. Um, remember the story of Elijah? So he wins this enormous victory over the bad guys. Stunning, spectacular victory. And then in the time-honored manner of human beings, he goes into a deep depression right at the heart, right at the peak of the good news. We, we do tend to do that. We do tend to do that. It's hard to understand why, but we do. Things work out for you in some spectacularly good way, and somehow that turns out to be a, a, a motive force for depression. So Elijah, who's just won this spectacular victory, races out into the desert and explains himself to God, that's it, I'm done, I hate everything, I need to die. Now at that point, we have a spiritual problem, we have a psychological problem, and that's the point at which you might think, okay, we need to instruct the ignorant, counsel the doubtful, comfort the sorrowful, fraternal correction, and all the rest. That's what we need to do with them. But actually what happens is, God sends to him an angel, and the angel says, here, I brought you something to eat. Eat this. And as soon as he's eaten it, the angel gives him a push down and puts him to sleep. Eat this and go to sleep. So the angel, the angel who recognizes that there's a psychological problem in Elijah first tends to the body as a way of dealing with a psychological problem because psyche and body are connected in us. And the angel takes care of his body. And then, when they've done that two or three times, then the angel and God together address the psychological problem for Elijah. So that's a nice, a nice story to show you how these things connect. So here's an interesting thing. Here's, you can do the spiritual works of mercy no matter what your condition is. So suppose you're uh, sick and hooked up to IVs in the hospital, and you have to be the recipient of care on the part of everybody's part, and you can't do anything. Actually, you can do the works of mercy because you can pray for everybody. So I had a friend, a nice 94-year-old Jesuit priest, very, very dear to me, who was dying. He was on hospice care and um, hooked up to more machinery than you can imagine. And he was um, rendered a little non mentis by the drugs, so he was not completely aware of who was in the room with him. And because he wasn't completely aware of who was in the room with him, the usual inhibitions he might have felt were loosened, and he said his prayers out loud. And what he did in that condition, in the, in the ICU, was pray for everybody. He said, Jesus, now you know Jeannie. She's really worried about rain for the crops. So you've got to think about Jeannie and the need for rain that she's got, and you've got to help her not be too unhappy while she's waiting for the rain. I was part of the people he prayed for. He said, now you know Eleanor. I'm sure she's got another book in her. You've got to encourage her to get that book done. <laughs> and that's how he spent his dying hours, see? So there is no situation you can be in in which you cannot serve the Lord through the works of mercy. Okay, the 
basic idea of the spiritual works of mercy is that you're supposed to help other people be the best they can be. You're supposed to instruct the ignorant. If you've got something that, if you've got some insight, some wisdom, some knowledge, and you can share it with others, okay, then you have an obligation to do it. It's not supererogatory. It's obligatory for you to share. Why? Well, remember the fourth species of pride? If you think that the good you have been given is just for you and not to share with others, then we have the fourth species of pride. So there's instructing the ignorant, counseling the doubtful, comforting the sorrowful, helping these people to be the best they can be, and then there's putting up with others while they're not yet the best they can be. That's bearing with those who trouble us. So I have a friend, also very dear to me, who loves to chew ice. And he loves to chew ice when he's talking to me on the telephone. <laughs> yeah, you know what that sounds like? Right in the right ear. Uh, and if you're inclined to uh, hate a person for troubling you in that way, or reject them, or punish them, or something, you haven't got the idea yet. Of course, you don't have to be an enabler of people who do such things. You can always say in a very kind way, you know, would you mind just holding the phone a little bit away or pushing the ice a little away or would you mind waiting till we're done talking? And you can, you can help people, but still, insofar as they're not yet the best they can be, putting up with them, guess what? Here's the interesting thing. It's not merciful or supererogatory in you. It's justice. It's a matter of justice and it's obligatory. How can it be possibly be a matter of justice? Well, because love is obligatory. How can love be obligatory? Easy. You're morally unlikable if you're an unloving person. And everything that makes you a person we like comes from love. So if you want to be a person in whom we see human beauty, you have to be loving. You have to be loving. And it's loving to take someone who's not the best he can be yet and put up with them. And if you can't do that, you're not loving of them. And if you're not loving, well, all the virtues go. And that's how it's part of justice. And then there's fraternal correction. Now, fraternal correction is telling the truth that hurts to other people. And guess what? This is obligatory, too. So if you have somebody who stinks because he's uh, rotten on hygiene, you owe it to him as a matter of justice to tell it to him. Now, you might think to yourself, well, what's hard about that? And you think that only because you're not paying attention. Nobody likes to engage in fraternal correction. And why not? Because we know that the person to whom you bring the truth that hurts isn't going to like you for this. And in fact, their general attitude is going to be to want to kill the messenger which is you. So people, people protect themselves through politeness. See, you think of politeness as a way of protecting the other person from you, but actually, you're, you're uh, flattering yourself here. You, you are polite to protect yourself from the other person. Uh, if you're as polite as you can be, the other person will like you, and if you tell the other person what you really think, they won't like you. And you want to be liked, because life is a lot easier and better if you're liked. 
That's why fraternal correction is a matter of obligation and justice. The other person can go on being self-deceived because you won't tell him the truth. Now, there are some constraints here. There's no virtue in being a meddling busybody. 9 o'clock, I'm going to house A. 10 o'clock, I'm going to house B. 11 o'clock, I'm going to house C. And I'm going to tell all those people their faults. That is not a virtue. That's not a virtue. So there are constraints, sensible constraints. The whole point of the system is to try to help the other person be better. And if all you do is succeed in making the other person believe you are really a big pain in the butt, then you haven't helped them be better. So you have to, you have to look for your opportunity. You have to look for where you have the right standing to be believed. You have to look for the cases where you're saying the word could make a difference. And in other cases, you need to just put up with those people who aren't the best they can be yet. And here's the other thing, you have to be sure you're right. Because do you remember the daughters of the sins? Slander is a daughter of a mortal sin. Detraction is a, a daughter of a mortal sin. They're daughters of envy. So if you, if you think that somebody needs to be uh, corrected for the bad way in which they are raising their children, but actually you have no idea what you're talking about, they're doing fine, then we don't have here something that falls on the list of uh, spiritual alms deeds. We just have a daughter of a deadly sin. But here's the last thing to notice, and this is the most important one. It doesn't matter what it costs you. Fraternal correction is still obligatory. So the Christian tradition has taken a very stern attitude on this score. Augustine says, and Aquinas confirms, Aquinas supports him. Augustine says, if you're in a position to engage in fraternal correction and you don't do it, your sin is worse than the sin of the person whose sin you didn't correct, no matter what their sin is. Now, the, the problem with this stern attitude is that fraternal correction can cost you a lot. So, um, consider that fraternal correction here is not limited to your, your mother, for example, uh, or your spouse. Fraternal correction here includes political action and civil disobedience. So what this system is telling you is that civil disobedience can be obligatory even if it costs you your status, your position, and even if it costs you your life. Now that is so stern, that is so stern, that we need to pause just a minute and look at it a little bit more carefully. So my favorite way of showing you what's at issue here has to do with Franz Stangl. Franz Stangl was uh, a Nazi who was first in charge of euthanasia clinics and then moved over to be in charge of Sobibor, the camp Sobibor, and finally wound up as commandant of Treblinka. And the, when the war ended, the um, the Allies brought him to trial and convicted him of war crimes against humanity, and they gave him a lengthy jail sentence. While he was in jail, a woman named Gita Sereni, 
journalist who's now very famous. Gita Sereni went to see him and she said to him, I'd like to do a biography of you and I'd like it to be a biography that focuses on this question, how did you come to be a person who could run a death camp? You must have been a lovely little boy. How did you get from that position to where you are now? And he said to her, oh, I was obeying orders. I never did anything wrong. It's just, you know, justice of the victors. She said, okay, well, in that case, I'm not coming back. I mean, if you want to engage in this process and really think about it with me, okay. If you want to give me some kind of boilerplate self-defense, I'm leaving. So he got interested in her question, and she spent endless amount of time with him. She, was, she, she wrote up as her biography, not a standard biography, but an accounting of her meetings with him to get the notes for the biography. And she was a wonderful interlocutor for him at any particular point at which he was inclined to engage in self-justificatory bullshit. She called him on it and got him to really focus and pay attention. And at the end of at the end of a long process of talking between the two of them, he finally saw it. And he said to her, I should have died. My fault was that I was not willing to die. Now, uh, what I want to say is that's got some self-flattery in it too, because lots of people resisted the Nazis and didn't die for it. But suppose just for a moment that he could be right. Here's what he, uh, he himself out of his own mouth is telling us. There can come a point in your life where your life goes better if you die than if you live. That's his judgment. And why is it his judgment? Because if your society gets so bad that it punishes with death a character of moral integrity, then you are better off, you are better off losing your, your life than losing your integrity. And the whole world validates Stangl's judgment. There is no one who thinks Stangl would not have been better off dying as an innocent person than continuing to live until he became the moral monster who was the commandant of Treblinka. And that's why this account is not really as stern as it seems, it is more nearly just realistic about the terrible effects of human evil. If you have a society so evil that you have to choose between death on the one hand or becoming a moral monster in one way or another, then you really are better off, really are better off engaging in civil disobedience and losing your life for it. So that's, that's the point uh, of this one. And I'm getting pretty close to done here. Um, that brings us to the one on the list, forgiving trespasses. Now I told you earlier on that the account of forgiveness falls out of the Thomistic account of love. Thomistic account of love says that love is a, uh, is a systems level feature. It merges from the interaction of these two desires, mutually governing desires, for the good of the beloved and union with the beloved. And here's what forgiveness is on this account then. It's, it's love directed towards somebody who's done you an injustice or harmed you in some way. So here's the thing. Forgiveness is a matter of desiring the good for the malefactor and desiring union with them. Now this is a kind of countercultural account. What people usually say 
about forgiveness in philosophical circles or in circles of philosophy of law, what they say is forgiveness is a matter of forswearing resentment and it's morally permissible only after the wrongdoer has repented, confessed, and made reparation for what he did. But um, this is an account which, the more you think about it, the more unsatisfactory it looks. For starters, there's a lot of attitudes you can have towards somebody who harmed you that got nothing to do with resentment. You might just be afraid of the wrongdoer, so traumatized that you can't even get yourself to anger against him. You just uh, just traumatized into fear. You might think he's not worthy of my anger and have nothing but contempt for him, and so on. So there's a lot of reactive attitudes you can have here. And they correlate, these reactive attitudes correlate with the desires of love. You can want what's not good for the malefactor in one way or another, or you can just want him to go away and reject union with him. But what we have in forgiveness, then, is going to be both desiring the good for the malefactor and also desiring union with him. And here's the thing to notice. If you have to wait for him to make reparations before you can have these attitudes, then you have to wait for him to make reparation before you can be loving toward him. And that does seem crazy. That makes your goodness and your integrity held hostage to what he decides to do. So forgiveness, like love, should be, can be unilateral and unconditional. Unconditional does not take even repentance on the part of the wrongdoer. And now you're thinking, yeah, but suppose he's an abusive husband and he beats her. You want to tell me she should just put up with it and stay with him because she's got this obligation to be loving? And the answer to that is no. The account of forgiveness as love toward a malefactor requires desiring what's really good for the wrongdoer. If you're living with a person who beats you and you stay there, your presence there enables him to continue beating you. And then you're enabling him to get worse. Enabling him to get worse is not desiring the good for him. And therefore it's not loving toward him. To be loving toward him is to do what you can do to get him to be the best he can be, and that might require calling the police, or moving out, or something along those lines. And in the same way, forgiveness requires desiring union, but what the union is which is desired is a function of the condition of the wrongdoer. So if the wrongdoer is determined to keep on beating you, you need to leave. You can't be united with somebody who's beating you. So here's the point. Forgiveness, like love, is a matter of desire. But what the fulfillment of those desires is, is not something that can be unilateral. It's mutual. And it depends on the condition of the person being forgiven. So you need to look what's, for what's really good for the wrongdoer. If your son is selling drugs to, to children, and you can't get him to stop in any other way, then you need to call the police. And that's desiring the good for him. And it's also desiring union with him. Because you can't be at one with him while he's doing something as evil as that, and you know it. Then you are only divided. 
and the way to be at one with him is to do what it takes to help him repent and reform. So that's, um, that's the idea of forgiveness, which is one of the spiritual almsdeeds, for, forgiveness. Um, let's see, I'm getting out of time here. Let me just skip over a little bit. Um, maybe here's the last thing. So on this account of forgiveness, forgiveness can be unilateral and that's nice. You can forgive somebody who hates you, you can forgive somebody who's dead, and you can explain the parable of the prodigal son. So how does the parable of the prodigal son go? The son who's been terrible to his father repents and comes home, but what? And all the way home he's practicing his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven against you, not worthy of your son. He's practicing his speech, but the father sees him a long way off and runs to him and falls on his neck and hugs him before the son can get that speech out. There you have forgiveness, unilateral and unconditional. If, if we had forgiveness on the standard philosophical account, the parable of the prodigal son would go like this. The prodigal son heads for home and the father races to meet him and says, you have an apology for me? Do you have any reparation for me? Do you recognize that what you've done is wrong? As soon as we get these things from you, we'll talk forgiveness, okay? And now we don't have a nice parable anymore. So, so the blessing of this account of forgiveness is it gives you forgiveness as something unilaterally in your control, something you can have for, for every wrongdoer. But here's the thing, reconciliation can't be unilateral. The union desired in forgiveness requires that both people involved in the relationship desire it and that they desire the good in desiring it. So forgiveness and reconciliation can come apart on this, on this uh, system, and that's a good thing because they should come apart. Because whether you can be at one with something can't be something you determine all by yourself. It has to be a matter of mutual interaction, and that can't be yours entirely to control. So that's the cardinal virtues and the alms deeds, which are part of justice, which is one of the uh, virtues. And with that, we are done for now.